This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. While you're turning there, let me remind you, we do have our evening service again uh, tonight. Uh, We didn't last week, of course, because of First Sunday lunch, but we resume that for the month of October this evening. and want to invite you to... Come and join us for that, uh, for the children's programs, of course. Also, uh, as uh, the adults gather in here for uh, worship, uh, we sing, we pray, study God's Word. We're going to be returning to Jeremiah this evening, looking at Jeremiah's vision of the two baskets of figs and what those figs meant for God's people in Jeremiah's day and what they mean for us today. So I hope that you will plan to return tonight, this morning. We are in Matthew, chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. When morning came, all the chief priests, the elders of the people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures, even for this passage, uh, in some ways a very dark passage here before us. And Father, we pray that you will guide us by your Spirit into a right understanding of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The strange and sad case of Judas Iscariot throughout the gospel, but particularly in this passage before us, forces us to go back to our own hearts to examine our hearts, to see whether we are disciples of Christ in reality or in mere appearance. 
Are we genuine Christians? You see, Judas showed every sign of being a believer, at least at a glance. He was with Jesus. He followed Jesus, heard his teaching, witnessed the miracles himself, engaged in missionary effort. But it's also true that there were warning signs, unseen perhaps, maybe by all but uh, Judas himself and perhaps Jesus. Uh, Judas had a problem with money. We learn that Judas tended to help himself to the funds that belonged to the disciples as a whole. And then, of course, ultimately, he betrayed his master. Well, as we come to this passage today, we are following in a sequence of events that Matthew records that began back with Jesus meeting with his disciples in the upper room. They're going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Jesus' subsequent uh, arrest when the mob came out to take him. And Matthew describes how the disciples scattered and fled, but then Matthew Uh, follows some of what happened from that point, uh, things happening simultaneously, and yet uh, things that Matthew one at a time uh, trails for us and reports to us. The first, of course, was what happened to Jesus himself, as Matthew records his being brought before the high priest and that hearing that took place, not an effort to find truth, but an effort to have some plausible grounds for executing Jesus. And then Matthew follows what happened with Simon Peter, who had uh, fled, but who had also circled back to follow and see what happened to Jesus, though at a distance for his own protection. And we saw last week how Matthew records uh, that uh, painful denial, threefold denial, of Peter uh, toward his master, toward his Lord, and how that event humbled Peter, how that event broke Peter, but ultimately, in God's grace, how that event made Peter. But what about the betrayer himself? Uh, What happens to him? Well, in this passage before us, Matthew records now what happens with Judas, with all of these things going on. Uh, He follows up with Judas, one, because people would want to know what happened to Judas. You know, suppose the Bible never commented on what happened to Judas. We would think, well, whatever became of Judas Iscariot, forever known as the one who betrayed him. Uh, But Matthew includes it for other reasons and more important reasons and merely to satisfy our curiosity. He includes it because what happened to Judas does serve as a warning to Christians. We need to let the account of Judas in the scriptures serve as a warning to us to be on guard against the power of sin and to keep watch over our own hearts. So that's what we're going to learn as we look at this passage as we study it. It basically divides up into four parts. Uh, The first is more by way of introduction, and that is the first couple of verses where we read, Morning came, chief priests and the elders took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Uh, That essentially summarizes what we saw when Jesus met with them, that uh, based on their verdict, he had blasphemed by his claim to be the Messiah, and that blasphemy was worthy of death. And morning came, they took counsel to put him to death. That was their verdict, so to speak. 
And, uh, and so they lead him away to Pilate, the governor, which sets the stage for what happens next with Jesus. But before we move on, Matthew again goes back to follow what happens with Judas. So three uh, parts to this account with Judas here. First of all, his remorse, how Judas felt about everything that happened. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. It says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, and that really is just a response to the first two verses. He sees that is the verdict. That's what happened to Jesus. Judas changed his mind. Now, that's an interesting statement to make. When when Judas saw what happened to Jesus, he changed his mind. Other translations render it, he regretted what he had done, or he felt ashamed of what he had done. It's a Greek word similar to the word for repentance, but it's not exactly the same word. In fact, the Greek word for repentance has the idea uh, of a change of mind or a different mind. And it's hard to know if there's meant to be any real distinction between that word and the term that's used here. If you want to look just at the word, some have suggested a distinction could be between a change, genuine repentance, a change in how one sees himself, a change in one's thinking about what you've done. And the word that's used here, which some have suggested, includes not or, or, or denotes not so much a change in one's thinking, but just a change in how you feel about it. Now, Judas obviously felt bad about what he had done. But if you go beyond mere words to the context, it's obvious that what takes place here is not real repentance. We might say it is remorse, and remorse only Remorse could be a part of repentance, to feel regret or remorse over what you've done, and yet genuinely to repent of it. But it seems that Judas did not go that far. He felt bad about what he had done. He felt ashamed of what he had done. He regretted what he had done. The ESV, he changed his mind, I think does capture that, but I think it might be uh, a little more accurate, better nuanced to say he felt ashamed of what he had done. He felt regret. Uh, He did change his mind. He obviously thought differently now about what he had done, and yet it all stopped short of genuine repentance. As we looked at Peter last time, although it was really too early to tell just from what we saw, we know that there was real repentance. There was real brokenness with Peter. With Judas, there was simply this regret, this shame, this remorse for what he had done. And that led him to do something rather curious. It says he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He did not want to keep the money. It was, it was such an embarrassment, it was such consternation to him, that even this 30 pieces of silver he had agreed for, he didn't want anymore. And so he goes back to those with whom he had made his bargain. It makes an interesting statement. In verse 4, he said, I have sinned. And he doesn't just acknowledge that. But how? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, that's important. It's almost incidental. But you have here another declaration of Jesus' innocence in the face of these who had just declared Jesus guilty 
Judas comes back and he said, I have sinned by betraying an innocent man. And so Judas' own testimony counters their verdict. It's easy to pass over that, but Judas makes a serious and significant statement there. And it's obvious that Judas is hurting. Uh, what, what caused his mind to change? Well, we, we don't know. We, the only thing the Bible really indicates that caused Judas to do what he did is greed. He'd been stealing money. Here it am, opportunity to make money. Uh, maybe there was more going on, as we've seen when Judas arranged the deal. Uh, if Judas was hoping somehow by betraying Jesus to set in event motions that would lead to a rebellion or a revolt with Jesus leading it, he's seen that that's not going to happen. He's seen that he's simply sending Jesus to his death. Uh, if Judas did this merely for money, he has seen that the money he received is so small and out of proportion to the damage that he has done to Jesus uh, and certainly to his own conscience. Uh, we don't know what Judas felt toward Jesus, but it's after being with him for three years, must have uh, been hit rather hard by the thought that this man he'd spent the last three years of his life with was going to be executed because of what he had done. All of this is going on, and all of this is painful for Judas. All of this is, is tumultuous for him. And so he goes to the chief priest, he goes back to the leaders and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And it's obvious the man is hurting. And these men that he goes to were not just the political leaders. They were the religious leaders. They were the pastors. And it may be that Judas, going to them, was confessing to them, was seeking their help, seeking their counsel, seeking their comfort, seeking something. How do they, repl- how do they reply to Judas? What's that got to do with us? That's your problem, pal. Judas is conscience-stricken. And he goes to the only people he knows to go to for help, and at least to get rid of this money that is a tangible symbol of his guilt. And they say, that, that doesn't have anything to do with us. That's your problem. That's basically what they say. The ESV renders it fairly literally. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Literally, something like you shall see. They're basically saying, you take care of it. That's not our problem. That has nothing to do with us. Now, they're wrong. It does. They're part of the deal. They are implicitly guilty in Judah's statement. I have betrayed an innocent man. Well, they're the ones that made the deal to, to arrest him. They're the ones that paid the money to arrest and capture this innocent man. Now, that has a great deal to do with them. This does not absolve them of guilt. You know, like Pilate later who would try to wash his hands of the whole thing. It has a lot to do with them. It's not just Judas's problem. But here we see his remorse. Here, even in one whom I can confidently assert was not regenerate, was not a Christian, because John, uh, Jesus in John 17 refers to him as the son of perdition, the son of judgment that God had ordained would be the means of Jesus being arrested. Even this unregenerate man is feeling pangs of conscience over the enormity of what he had done. Simply feeling guilt does not make you a Christian. And non-Christians can very much feel guilt over what they have done. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the law being written on our hearts. That even pagans who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law. 
Well, the contrary is also true. When they don't do the things required by the law, even a non-Christian can feel guilt in his conscience or her conscience because God made us that way. Because they know deep down inside, no matter how much they want to deny it, that there is right and there is wrong. And we can't deny that, ultimately, deep down. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. And so this should not only make us hurt for Judas, but for friends, people you know who are not believers, who may well have bleeding consciences because of things that they have done that they feel guilty for, and how they need the gospel, how they need to know the Savior who died for those sins that they might be saved, who died for the sins of even the the worst of sinners, even the most numerous sins. So the first thing we see here is Judas' remorse. And then the second thing we see here is his money. Look at verses 6 and 7. When they say that, we read in verse 5, Judas, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. They won't take the money back. And Judas is trying to essentially undo the deal, at least for his own sake, if not for Jesus. And they, they say, we don't want your money. It's not anything to do with us. You've got a problem, that's your problem. And so Judas, almost to repudiate what he had done, takes the money and throws it into the temple or the temple area, just by way of rejecting what he had just done. Now, he won't take the money back, but he throws the money into the temple, and it says he departed and he went and hanged himself. This was a man whose torment, whose grief was so deep that when he went and expressed what he had done, was met with this callous, uh, unsympathetic wall, felt like he had no other option than to go out and kill himself. That was the only way he could end the pain he was feeling, was to end himself. Well, here they are with this money that that Judas had thrown in and... uh, Chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put those coins into the treasury since it's blood money. Oh, suddenly we're standing on principle. It was okay to take this money and pay Judas in order to have this innocent man betrayed into our hands so we can put him to death, but we can't take this money and put it back in the temple because it's blood money. Well, doesn't that just remind you of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, Uh, verse 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know, you nitpick these little bitty things, but you forget the big picture. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He said, You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, they're willing to unjustly put a man to death for their own convenience, but they're not willing to take this money back into the temple because it's tainted. That's the way of legalism. You know, you pick your own little legalisms, the ones you can keep, and you condemn others in in other areas uh, that uh, you, uh, uh, you tolerate in yourself. But this is just a prime example of what Jesus condemns them for. And so they take the money, and they bought with money, Potter's field, uh, maybe a, a field that potters in Jerusalem would, obviously there was more than one, would go to for clay for their pots. It's not known exactly why it was called that or even where it is. And they bought that field with money as a place to bury strangers, uh, either, either non-Jews who were in town and died or maybe Jews who were there for pilgrimage or whatever had died. 
uh, basically a foreigner's uh, cemetery, uh, which forever, at least as long as the cemetery was there anyway, associated that money with death. But at least put it to a, a, a good use. Uh, it was forever called the field of blood. Now you may know Acts 1 describes some of this as well. It speaks of Judas having purchased a field, and in fact it was purchased with his money, if only through the agent of these Jewish leaders. And Judas uh, plunging headlong and, so we say, breaking open. Uh, in looking at that passage and this one, it seems not so much that there's contradiction as it is a paucity of information to put together the whole picture. It seems perhaps that Judas, having hanged himself, either the branch broke or he, ha- he was there long enough to eventually fall and, so we say, uh, be rather messy. Uh, and that the field was purchased with money that legally belonged to Judas. And so technically you could say it was his field. Well, that's what happened with money. But Judas repudiates what he's done, throws the money back, and they wind up buying a field. And then with this field, you see in the third place this fulfillment of prophecy. So typical of Matthew, again, even in this, even in this sordid affair, Scripture is being fulfilled. Then what's fulfilled would have been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. He cites Jeremiah. Uh, as a reference there to, is, to uh, uh, Zechariah as well in that passage, but Jeremiah being the predominant reference there, several passages in Jeremiah. But as Matthew does, he's showing even this is fulfilling the Scriptures. And so we see the sad end of Judas Iscariot. Before we close, uh, I want us to think just about several uh, lessons we can draw from this. First, to be diligent to make use of the means that God has given us for our salvation. You say, well, I'm in church. I'm exposed to them. Yes, so was Judas. Judas was with Jesus. Judas had opportunities like you and I never will to actually be there, to witness these things, to be part of these things. He was there in the upper room just like the others. In the end, they availed him nothing. We need to pray that God would give us hearts that are open to his word when we hear it preached, when we study it in Sunday school, when we open the Bible and read for ourselves, when we spend time in prayer. That it wouldn't be, as we prayed earlier in our, in our, uh, in our prayer of confession, uh, just empty things that, that the prayer talks about. Uh, it refers to praiseless praise, praiseless sound, uh, prayers from a prayerless heart. You know, for Judas, it ultimately was all just the externals. So we need to make sure that, by God's grace, the privileges that we enjoy of hearing the word, of praying, of being prayed for, that all of these things do lead to genuine salvation, to a heart for Christ. Second thing, the warning that's throughout Scripture, sin always promises more than it delivers. Judas thought 30 pieces of silver. Boy, what I couldn't do with some of that money. Right? Judas got what he wanted. 30 pieces of silver. What pleasure did it bring him? None. In fact, just the opposite. Proverbs 10, verse 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Judas discovered that the hard way. 
Sometimes you and I have discovered that the hard way. More broadly, the pleasures of sin promise more than they deliver. They promise uh, joy, they bring heartache. They promise life, they bring death, metaphorically, ultimately, literally. And that was true here for Judas. What that money brought him was sorrow, remorse, self-incrimination, self-accusation, and ultimately self-inflicted death. Quietest conscience. Sin promises more than it delivers. Third thing we can learn from this passage, repentance is not man-made, but God-given. One of the dangers of presuming to sin, saying, well, God will forgive me, is to presume that you would be able to repent of that sin. Dear friend, how do you know that your heart, if you're so hardened as to proceed full speed ahead into what you know is sin, that you then think your conscience would be so soft as to allow you genuinely to repent before God? Repentance is a gift of God's grace. It's God who grants repentance. That's not something you work up within yourself. You may feel bad about sin. You may feel regret. You may feel remorse. You may feel guilty. But genuine repentance is not yours to create, but God's to give. That was something God did not give to Judas, that he did give to Peter. But the other side of that, the fourth and last lesson, God is gracious to those who repent. Just on the human level, what if Judas had gone not to the chief priests and elders, but to Jesus What if Judas had gone to Jesus and said, Lord, not teacher, Lord, I have sinned by betraying an innocent man. What response do you think you would have got? If that was the expression of his heart's grief before Jesus, I think you would have heard, you're forgiven. I'm going to die for that sin for you. I don't know that. That didn't happen. That's not what Judas did. But I suspect if Judas had gone to Jesus in that contrition, he would have found not, well, that's your problem, pal. We're through. We're over. I don't have anything more to do with you. That's what he got from the ones he had been dealing with. But if he'd gone back to Jesus, I think he would have been met with grace, with forgiveness, with pardon, with cleansing. What sin have you committed? What sin hurts your heart today? What sin grieves your conscience right now? Go to Jesus. Confess it to Him. Acknowledge it to Him. That you have sinned. Call it what it is. And with Jesus there is grace. And with Jesus there is forgiveness. The Word of God tells us that. The Lord's Supper tells us that. The blood of Jesus tells us that. Let your sin drive you not to self-destruction, but to the cross of Jesus, to the one who was destroyed there for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Thank you, O God, that it was his death, not mine, that atones for my sin. Father, we pray that we would learn well the lessons of Judas Iscariot, to search our hearts, to examine our hearts, to stay close to you, to be 
diligent in the means of grace, not just out of routine or in a mechanical way, but out of desperate hunger for you, Lord Jesus, and for your grace. Father, we thank you for the cross. Lord, grant to us genuine and real and thoroughgoing repentance, a real change of mind about our sin, that we would hate it, but that we would love you, that we would love the cross, that we would love your grace, that we would love obedience. Father, thank you for your grace that is, in fact, greater than our greatest sin, greater than all our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.